Verse 26 begins with these words, And so all Israel shall be saved. This may not have occupied your attention much over the years. But I'm telling you now, these words have been the source of much debate. Particularly with regards to the end times. And the area of doctrine known as eschatology or the study of the last things. These verses, verses often used to defend a particular view of the millennium or a particular view of the things happening around the return of Christ. Perhaps better, it's used as a basis for those views. Now, through interpreting this passage, people come with various ideas and doctrines concerning the nature of the end times and the coming of Christ. There are likely a variety of views in this very room. Various views regarding 1948 and the, formation, the reformation of Israel as a nation. Various views regarding Israel's place in redemptive history before, after, during Christ's return. All manner of different ideas, perhaps in this very room. I assert again, as a denomination, we have an open view regarding eschatology. Not in every single area of eschatology, but in general terms, there is openness regarding various views on a portion of scripture just like this. So therefore I remind you of the primary purpose of this passage. It is not to engender pride, but humility. This passage is written that Gentiles will be humble in the presence of God. Verse 18, boast not against the branches. Verse 20, be not high-minded, but fear. And so when looking at verse number 26, all Israel shall be saved, the first point I want to draw your attention to is the necessity of a humble approach or a humble attitude. Here's a preacher, you've you've got to give me some space here. I'm going to give you a treatment of this passage that ultimately has an opinion attached to it. I am not shirking my duty to come at this with a humble approach. It's not the case that I'm saying to all you, I'm right, you're all wrong, you be humble, and I'm going to be proud. That's not the point. So you've got to allow me to preach. And you may not agree with me, but you've still got to allow me to preach. And let me express how I see the passage in light of the word of God. But be assured, I have come at this with a humble approach. I want to apologize at this point, but the outline in the bulletin has just three headings. There's a lot of packing in the middle, but I wanted the bulletin done before I went to Orlando and did a lot of the work on this uh, between airports and airplanes in the last couple of days. So that's the reason for the lack of detail Not because I'm trying to hide something from you and shirk away some of that information. Humility is vital here. Paul says in verse 25, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits. So as he comes to verse 26, he he puts as front and center the necessity and the the necessity of humility and the danger of arrogance when it comes to these things. And so how does Paul deal with the potential for a conceited mind in this area? What does he do about that? How does the Bible address proud people? By teaching them. 
by instructing in the word. That is how Paul and the entire Bible addresses the proud hearts of men. Because the Bible's theme is to remind us all what matters is not what you think, it's what God thinks. What really matters is that your thoughts are God's thoughts. And that you leave aside your thoughts and submit to God's thoughts. That's what's really, really important. And so Paul comes in Romans 11 and refers again to this idea of a mystery. I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. I don't have time today. It's too much to do today. But this idea of a mystery is used in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul not to detail something that cannot be understood but rather something that was concealed and is now made clear in the New Testament through the infilling of the Spirit of God. And so what he's doing in saying this, he is saying, I have received of God a revelation concerning this thing. That's what he's saying. You want to take it, you want to make a note in your Bible, you have 1 Corinthians chapter 2 to prove that assertion. He is saying, I don't want you not to know what I know. It's it's not a school playground sort of thing. I know something you don't know. It's not some secret knowledge. Rather, he's saying that as an apostle, God has revealed truth to me, and I want to share that with you. That's what he's saying. And just again, as a passing comment, it reminds us again that apostolic authority is equal to Old Testament authority or to the authority of the direct words of Jesus. It's again, it's an implied assertion here because some people have the idea, well, God speaks directly in the Old Testament, God speaks directly in Jesus in the gospel. But when you get to the epistles, well, that's just Paul's view. That hermeneutic, that way of studying the Bible is so prevalent and destructive today. So Paul, when it comes to the role of woman, that's just Paul's view for that day. Or when it comes to Paul's interpretation of marriage, that's just Paul's view back in those days. I want to remind you again, it's not got much to this passage. When Paul speaks, God speaks. Paul's words are the words of God through inspiration. He is an inspired apostle that comes with the authority of God himself. Therefore, hear Paul, and not a Bible teach you heard X number of years ago. Don't live in the assumptions that what you were told by a Bible teacher in the past is infallibly true. It may not be. And the same is true for me here tonight, or today. I'm going to give you what I believe to be the word of God, but I do so with humility, and it is your duty to search the scriptures to prove these things in the scriptures and not listen to any human source. The word of God governs your views on these things. And so the humble attitude is vital when you come to this passage. I want to read to you an extended quotation from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones as he deals with Romans chapter 11. He says this, We must be careful that our proper interest in the content of this chapter does not become carnal excitement. There is more than one way of being excited. We can be excited intellectually as well as emotionally. I warn those who are keen to find out what is going to be said in this matter or that, and particularly on so Israel shall be saved, this attitude is quite inappropriate when one comes to study the scriptures. It's not about putting everything in one place, says Lloyd-Jones. You, you must be desiring to know what God says. He continues, Let us remind ourselves at the outset of two things which you find in this chapter. 
The first is the apostle refers to it, to a mystery. If we therefore think we have this chapter all sorted out and tabulated and there can be no other view worth considering, we are already wrong. That's, that's foundational in terms of our open views of denomination. We understand that while we have our convictions and I have mine, you're going to hear them. I don't deny that there are other views that may be acceptable in the interpretation of this passage. You've got to work it out. He continues. But the second, this is, this is so important. The second matter when it comes to this passage is to see how the apostle concludes this chapter. Having written it, he finds himself in a state of mind and heart in which he can think of nothing and do nothing else but praise and worship God. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And I'm going to continue. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. And so there are things in this passage that really are beyond our full comprehension. We get what God says. We try to understand that. But we must do so humbly. So therefore, secondly, let us consider what I deem to be a helpful argument. If we're going to come to this with a humble attitude, I want you to consider what I'm going to say as a helpful argument. I'm not talking about a debate. We're not going to fight here, okay? I'm using the word argument in the sense of, of, a, of a, a logical form, a reasoned defense of a certain position. And the argument that I think is helpful is when we note the consistent themes that occur both before and after verse 26. When you see this, I think it helps to set verse 26 in a proper context. There's a repetition of the same things. And therefore, the former should interpret the verse, which also in turn is then interpreted by what follows. Far too often, verse 26, part A, is taken and plucked out of all context. Can't do that. So what is revealed before and after? Well, there are several things. First of all, there is a revelation that God entered covenant with national ethnic Israel. God entered a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, with the people of God known as Israel in the Old Testament. And that's Paul's burden back in chapter 11, verse 1. Hath God cast away his people? No, because I'm, says Paul, of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. He's affirming again that God has not broken covenant, the covenant that he entered. Verse 2 God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. And it's referring again to that, that covenant community. And so in verse 24, as Paul is dealing with the subject of unbelieving Jews, he says in verse 24, the very end, How much more shall these, which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? I encourage you to go back to last week. And again, the thought that this olive tree represents the covenantal promises of God given to Israel. And their expectation is that God did enter covenant with national ethnic Israel. That same theme recurs then after verse 26 in verse 27. This is my covenant unto them. Now, who is the them? Well, verse 28 makes it clear, as concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Undoubtedly, verse 28 is referring again to national ethnic Israel. Not Gentiles, 
but national Israel, because verse 28 says, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. Again, it's referring to this covenantal arrangement. For the gifts and calling of God, verse 29, are without repentance. So God has entered into covenant with national ethnic Israel. Also we note, before and after, that God has a spiritual remnant within national ethnic Israel. Okay, so you've got big nation. And Paul's making the point, it is that nation that God chose out of all the nations in the world. But within that nation, there are those who are genuinely believers in God and in Christ, and there are those who are not. And there's that spiritual remnant that establishes and holds on to the covenant. You've got that, of course, in verse number five. That's the whole point of the early verses. What about Elijah and the remnant? What about Elijah's day when the 7,000 are reserved to God? Verse five, even so then. And please note this language. At this present time. I'm going to keep coming back to this. At this present time, also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Paul's assertion here is that we are not to see ethnic Israel as being the the people of God without qualification. But within their designation as a nation, there's also this spiritual group. And they are are the true children of God, chapter 9. The spiritual remnant within Israel. Verse 28 also goes back to that then. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as touching Here he comes back to the idea of this election of grace. As touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. Covenant with Israel. He is a remnant within that covenant. And those who believe will then be regrafted into these covenantal promises. And undoubtedly again, verse 24 is referring to people who are ethnically Jewish, who are then grafted back into the spiritual promises of the covenant so those who are not unbelievers can still be part of this election of grace part of the remnant but their being part of that remnant only comes when they believe the gospel not because of who they are ethnically but because they come to believe in Christ Jesus that's what brings them back into the covenant And so in light of this, God's covenant of promises, Paul expects those promises to be realized in his day. Verse 27, for this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. Whose sins? The sins of Jews. But all Jews? No, believing Jews. Those who come to take Christ Jesus as their Savior, they are regrafted in, and the covenant promises are theirs. Not because of their ethnic position, but because of the word of God's grace in their heart. And so, what does all this mean at this point? Well, I believe what we see in the passage, in this helpful argument of the context before and after, we see something very, very simple. And that is that Paul expects. To see the salvation of Jews in his time and in the future. Paul is preaching to Gentiles at that time. And he is applying these truths to Gentiles at that time. 
Not just to Gentiles when the Lord returns. Not just to Gentiles right now at this time. But at Paul's time. He's saying the Gentiles in his time. I fully expect God to continue to save Jews. Part of the election of grace. That remnant in God's purposes. He is believing that Jews will still be saved. Even during the time when the gospel goes to the Gentiles. I don't think you can argue with that. You might want to, but I don't think you can. Paul is saying, I expect to see Jews saved in his time. He prays for them. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Verse 14, might save some. Verse 26, Israel shall be saved. He's living with the expectation that people who are ethnically Jewish will indeed come to know Christ and be gloriously saved. And praise God, they're in our area right now. There are those who are Jewish by birth, Jewish ethnically, but they've come to know Christ as their saviour. And they're saved. And they're part and parcel with us of this great olive tree. And so, we can say that Paul's expectation is of God to save a remnant of Jews in every generation. The question then comes, does he have expectation of some larger in gathering what does verse 26 mean and so all israel shall be saved before we get there we've got to look at verse 25 in some detail what does verse 25 mean now here i think i should assert that the concept of God saving Jews in the generations of Paul and in future generations certainly implies that God will save elect Jews in all generations. But it may also imply a larger number at some stage, or even it may imply large national renewal. All of those views could be defended. None of those views destroy the sense of Verse 26 in the passage. All elect Jews. A large gathering of Jews in the future. Large national renewal. All of those things I think could be defended in the passage. We can back to Lloyd-Jones. Understand that there are many views that can be held. Without doing injustice to the passage. Doesn't mean they're all right. Doesn't mean they're all right. Just saying. 2,000 years on. We look back at this. and We've got to do so with care. But verse 25 refers again to this mystery. Now, we've heard already, the mystery involved here is something that was concealed, but now is revealed by the Spirit of God. And Paul says this, I, I would not you be ignorant of this mystery. What's the mystery? That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. That's the mystery, states. Don't be ignorant of this mystery. What mystery? That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Now, Israel here, verse 25, has to refer to national ethnic Israel. There is no debate there. The whole previous context has shown us that within national Israel there was blindness. You go back to verse number 8. And the blindness is clearly referring to the fact they were blind to Jesus Christ being the Messiah. Verse 8. 
according as it's written. God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear. There's the blindness. But verse 7 says this, Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election obtained it, and the rest were blinded. And that's so important you come to verse 25. That within national Israel, there are the elect who see Jesus, and the rest are blinded. And Paul is saying that blindness in Israel is present until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so you come to the words that I believe have been assumed that many times without necessarily being proven. And it's three words. In part and until. Ordinarily, those are interpreted, understood as having some sort of time sequence. The general thought is, Gentiles have their time for grace, followed by Jews having their season again. Many of you heard that idea. Nod, check, just make sure you're still awake. So some idea that God's got a timetable, and this timetable right now is Gentiles, but after the Gentiles, God's then going to deal with the Jews again. That's generally how these verses are understood, particularly those who have been raised in a dispensational background. And they see these words as dealing with time sequence. Now, it is true to say that Gentiles at this time are enjoying a time of gathering and have been the last 2,000 years. Those who have been converted, by and large, in the last 2,000 years have been Gentiles and not Jews. God's Old Testament promises, again, according to Romans 11, those Old Testament promises to Israel have been fulfilled in all believers, both Jews and Gentiles. It's not that the church replaces Israel. It's rather the promises are fulfilled in the New Testament church. Both Jews and Gentiles gather together. There's neither Jew nor Greek in Christ Jesus. But in part, I believe, does not mean for a while. I don't think that's what in part means. Not because I don't want to mean that, because I don't think it means it in terms of the language used here. So the idea is blindness for a time has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. That the words in part have some sort of, you know, termination idea. I don't think that's what it means. In part here, I believe, means Partial, not complete. So text is saying this, that blindness is partial in Israel. And that is very consistent with the rest of the passage. Because we saw already back in verse uh, number 7. Israel had not obtained it, but the election had obtained it, and the rest were blinded. And so Paul is making the assertion that the blindness that comes upon Israel is not entire, it is not complete, it is in part partial, not complete. And that continues until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. The word until is also then assumed to have a certain meaning. And it is assumed that the meaning that the fullness of the Gentiles will then usher in a new phase. 
that when the Gentiles' fullness come in, then there's going to be this new phase after that. That's assumed, and only assumed if you see in part, to have to do with time. And not to do with partial blindness of the way people. I'm trying to do this in context. The blindness in the earlier portion of the chapter is not for the entire nation. There's a remnant according to election of grace. There are many who are blind, the multitude blind, the majority blind, but there are those who see. It's partial. So therefore, what does until mean? Well, it means until the end. So that's often used. We think about Paul used it elsewhere in Corinthians. First off, you eat this bread and drink this cup, you show the Lord's death until he come. In other words, the entire period of time up to Christ's return, that entire block of time, you continue to practice the Lord's Supper until he comes. In similar language, you've got the same idea in 1 Corinthians 15. He must reign Till all enemies are put under his feet. That does not mean that Christ stops reading after that. It's emphasizing the fact that all the time until he finally comes, that entire time, Christ is still reigning over his enemies. He's reigning all the time until Christ returns. Robertson, the commentator, says this. Too often until has been understood as marking the beginning of a new stage of things with regard to Israel. It is hardly be considered that until more naturally should be interpreted as reaching an end times, an eschatological termination point. The phrase implies not a new beginning after termination, and here's the key, but the continuation of a circumstance until the end of time. Again, think of the Lord's Supper. Until he comes. So from Paul's writing all the way to Christ comes, you keep on practicing the Lord's Supper. And so when it comes to this partial blindness, this partial blindness continues all the way until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. The period of time is marked continually by partial blindness in Israel. And the continual presence of a remnant according to the election of grace of those who are ethnically Jewish. And so therefore, you get the verse number 26. And Paul then says, And so all Israel shall be saved. I don't know how to make this go any faster or any simpler, but thank you for listening and trying your best to keep this. When you come to this, again, there are three classical views. Israel here refers to all the elect Jews and Gentiles. That's one view. I don't believe the right view. For one, that's not a mystery. That's obviously true. You know, if if you're lost in the sea of all of this, you, you have a few options. Listen again with a notebook. Or rest in the fact that Christ shall see the child of soul and be satisfied. And rest in the fight, whatever it all means, I know that Christ will lose none of his people. And those he died for will eventually, finally be saved and kept forever and ever and ever. You can stop there. But it's not the meaning of this verse. 
All Israel here is not referring to spiritual Israel, i.e. the elect of Jews and Gentiles, because that's not a mystery, that's known. And it's also not true in the context. The following verses clearly refer to national Israel and not spiritual Israel. So I'm going to leave that one aside. Another view is that it refers to all ethnic Israel. A national renewal of ethnic Israel. Either all, literally everybody alive at a certain time, who are Jewish, or at least a great number of them. It's this idea of an expansive conversion of the Jewish people at the end of the age. Somewhere in that end, and again, the various views entering into millennial reign, all the various views there. Okay, I'm going to park that one. Apart from to say that at best it rests upon particular interpretations of the Old Testament scriptures. But there is no clear Old Testament passage that promises full national renewal of the Jewish people. The passages that are often used for that can easily refer to the gospel age where Jews and Gentiles come under the covenant promises. But, having said that, I do accept that people see it that way, and I'm not going to argue. At least not too much. The third one is this. All Israel refers to all elect Israel. That's what it means. And again, there are some very easy proofs for this. All Israel shall be saved. Saved. They've come to faith in Christ Jesus. They've come to believe the gospel. Therefore, they must by nature be elect. Again, it's the passage. There's an election according to grace. The remnant are there. It's also mentioned in verse number 28 as touching the election there, beloved for the Father's sake. It's referring to elect Israel. Elect Israel doesn't mean all Israel. It means all elect Israel in that sense. And Paul is clear. When he speaks of the election of Israel, he always speaks of a remnant not the entire nation. They are also clearly Jewish, ethnically Israel. Because we've seen verse 27 and following clearly as language regarding ethnic national Israel. In fact, out of them, out of Zion, verse 26 comes the deliverer. And so undoubtedly Paul's mind here is that it is ethnic Israel who are saved. What's he getting at here? What's the mystery? Well, verse 26 is saying this. Blindness in part, partial blindness has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. In that way shall Israel be saved. The word so here, again, is not a word of sequence. It is a word of in that manner. The same way the word is used in John chapter 3 verse 16. For God in this manner loves the world. For God so loved the world. How does God love the world? By giving his only begotten son. And so all Israel is saved in this manner. In what manner? In the manner that Paul has just stated. By the salvation of Gentiles. Provoking Israel to jealousy whereby some of them come to know the gospel and believe the gospel. That's the way that God is going to save elect Jews 
in the gospel age. That's in this manner. And I mention that because verse 30 and 31 really restates what Paul has said in verse 11 through 14. Verse 30. For as ye in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief, even so these also now not believed, that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. He's, he's expounding verse 26. And he's making the point, higher Israel saved. Because Gentiles, you have mercy, so that they can then have mercy. And we read verse 11 through 14. Have they stumbled, they should fall. God forbid, but rather through their fall, salvation has come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. And we saw last time, the outcome of their jealousy, verse 14, is that they might be saved. So how is God saving Jews today? By saving Gentiles. And by provoking Jews to jealousy, whereby they come to know the gospel. And so in that way, so all Israel shall be saved. We understand, again, that all does not mean everyone without exception in the Bible. But it's consistently used, particularly by Paul here, of that elect remnant. And so verse number 32 says, For God hath concluded them all, or, or as the margin says, shut them all together in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. And again, it's used in a similar way to Romans chapter 5. It has this idea that all the Jewish nation are unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all them that will come to faith in Christ Jesus through election according to grace. So therefore, Gentiles don't be proud, says Paul. Blindness is not complete, but it's partial. And it's true in the entire New Testament age and as Gentiles are saved, in that manner all elect Israel shall also be saved. I think, I use it that carefully, I think that is the most consistent way to interpret the passage in its context. Paul's expectation from verse 1 to verse 36 is that God will continue to save Jews in his time. He is not looking ahead 2,000 or 3,000 years. He's expecting what he says right now to be fulfilled as he writes and until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. Before we close this section, I remind you the fullness of the Gentiles refers to the salvation of all elect Gentile, not every single Gentile. And so when you think of the word all regarding all Israel, that corresponds to verse number 12 of chapter 11 when Paul refers to how much more their fullness. And so the fullness of Gentiles refers to the salvation of every elect Gentile. So I believe the fullness of Israel refers to the salvation of every elect Israelite. I give you what I have. I can do no more. It will be online. You can search the scriptures daily, listen, and consider these things together. Before we close, I want to end with some hopeful application. You see, this is, I, I don't want to violate what Lloyd-Jones says. I don't want to be guilty of intellectual excitement and, oh, look what I can see now, and I've got it all figured out. I, I don't have it all figured out. This is the best I can offer. 
But I don't want to end with some intellectual excitement without our proper application of the word of God. And in the application, I think we'll also tie together some other loose ends. First of all, application one, Jesus Christ guarantees the salvation of all the elect. Uh, obviously. Oh, yeah, I know it's obvious, but it's in our passage. 26b, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. There's so much comfort in the connection here. The salvation of whoever they are, that salvation is connected to the coming of Jesus. And the passage is absolutely certainly referring to Christ's first coming, not a second. Christ's second coming is out of heaven. His first coming is out of Zion. He came unto his own. Revelation 12, he came out of the woman that represents national Israel. He comes out of Zion to be the great deliverer and the redeemer. Praise his name. He comes in his second coming to judge the earth in righteousness. Not to put away sin. When Christ comes a second time, there's no second chances. Today is the day of salvation. If you're going to be saved, it must be today in that sense. And so you see here is that out of Zion comes the deliverer and the deliverer turns away ungodliness from Jacob and that ungodliness is explained in verse 27. This is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. The blood of the New Testament which is shed for many for the remission of sins, says Christ. The New Covenant, the New Testament is the means whereby sinners are forgiven and their sins are removed. How does that New Covenant come about? By the blood of the deliverer. By the blood of Christ, that takes our sins away. That's our hope. And more than likely, verse 27 is referring to Jeremiah 31. I will forgive their iniquity. And I will remember their sin no more. The new covenant made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That new covenant that is not awaiting fulfillment in some future time. But that new covenant that is fulfilled right here, right now. Even when Paul wrote Hebrews chapter 8 and Hebrews chapter 10. Fulfilled in the sense that Gentiles are gathered in and grafted into those promises. Ephesians chapter 2. And so what you're seeing here is the assertion that Christ has come and died to guarantee the salvation of every elect Jew and every elect Gentile. He shall die. He shall save. He shall see the travel of his soul and shall be satisfied. His death guarantees our salvation. I know you know that, but it's in our text, and we should feast upon it again every Lord's Day. The only way a Jew can be converted is not because of their ethnic background, it's because of the blood of Jesus. And the only way you can be saved today is by trusting in Christ's finished work. He who came as the mediator, the Messiah, the promised Redeemer who died to save us from our sins. The second hopeful application is that we should expect to see Jews come to faith in Christ Jesus. That should be our expectation. That's the point. The point is that Paul believes that a Jewish remnant will be saved. Paul expects that in his own time. And he's speaking to those Gentiles, do not be proud. God is not finished with the Jew. Okay, we've got to understand this. 
there may well be a large number of Jews converted at the end of the age. But it's not absolutely guaranteed taught in this passage. It's not inconsistent with it, but I don't believe it's the main point. Paul is not looking down the scene of time, 2,000 years away. He's looking at his own day and generation in the conviction and the belief that Jews will be converted. And we should have the same persuasion today. All Jews elect in the gospel will indeed be saved, saved through Christ's blood. And there are elect Jews after the first century. That's Paul's point. God's mercy to Jews does not end with the cross of Christ. It doesn't end after Pentecost. It doesn't end in Corinth in Acts, 6, or Acts 18 or, or later on in Rome in, in Acts 28. God still, as it says in verse number 28, they are beloved for the Father's sake. And within national Israel, there will be that election according to the election of grace, that remnant preserved by God's mercy. One wonderful truth in this is the recognition that while other nations rise and fall, Israel has been preserved throughout the the generations. One man says this, Israel will continue to exist as a people alongside the Gentiles, predicts Paul. It will not expire or disappear from the earth. Because God will save Jews all the way until Christ returns. Because they're Jews? No, because of his grace. But in recognition of his covenant promises to that nation, verse 29, the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. He first entered covenant with Israel. We're stuck into that. Praise his name. But we're the wild branches. They're the natural branches. Therefore, do not boast. We should expect to see Jews saved in our day. Thirdly, I want to remind you in closing, God's mercy is available to all who believe. I know this is is an unusual sermon for me. Maybe it's not, but I I think it is. I know I've taken a long time in that second point to just go through piece by piece by piece by piece. And if you find it hard to follow along, well, again, listen back, think it through. But ultimately, understand this passage. That God is merciful towards sinners. But that mercy is found by faith in Christ alone. There is no mercy with God outside faith in Christ. And verse number 31 says this, Even so have these also now not believed that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. No faith in Christ outside the mercy of God. But obtaining mercy as they come to trust in Jesus Christ. So if you're here today and you think, well, what's this all about for me? Do you know the mercies of God? Have you been saved by God's grace? Are you someone who can say, God has taken away my sins. I've seen the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. Have you had that blessed assurance in your soul? There is mercy with the Lord. Today is the day of salvation for Jew and Gentile. Come to Christ today. Flee from your sin and find a refuge in Christ Jesus. What a blessed saviour he is.
Let's pray together in prayer. Eternal God and Father, we look to thee again in Christ's name. With humility, we leave the message here and we say, O God, that you would take that which is according to yourself and help your people to consider these things carefully. But ultimately, O God, we pray for the application of the Spirit of God that we would not be proud and recognize, O God, as Gentiles, you've saved us by your grace. You've drawn us into salvation. We didn't deserve it. So we thank you, dear Father, for your mercy. Help us to search the scriptures, to dig deep into the word of God. That we, O God, would know the blessing of the triune God to rest and abide upon us today. Bless the food prepared for us. Bless our fellowship together. May we know again a sweet time of communion with one another as we reflect again upon the glories of the gospel of Christ Jesus. Thank you for saving our souls. Bless our worship this afternoon as well. We do pray in Jesus' name. Amen.